You are listening to a message from Parkway Church in Kurana. We thank you so much for listening. And if you like what you hear, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday morning here at 10 a.m. If you'd like more information, click on our Visit tab on our website. Genesis 26. I, I was excited to, to release this word all week. The, the Holy Spirit almost birthed it in me. I'm reading through the Bible, trying to read through the Bible in a year, and I've been in Genesis for the last few days, and this passage of Scripture jumped out at me, and I'm not, I'm not reading through the Bible for sermon material. I'm reading through the Bible for my life, right? I, I need to uh, get my spiritual nourishment every day, so I'm reading through the Word, but this jumped out at me, and, and even as I moved on in Genesis, the Holy Spirit kept bringing me back to it over and over again, and so uh, I was excited about releasing it until this morning. And then I just felt this sense of, oh, Lord, but I know that I know that I know. I'm not going to be prophesied to and say this isn't for this time or season, but this is the word that the Lord has for us. It's probably the most important message I've preached all year. <laughs> I just love seeing that. We're only five Sundays in the year. That's the point. Uh, but it could be one of the most important messages that I believe I could speak all year as far as our direction goes. So... The message is, pick up your shovel and dig, man. Uh, that's, that's the title, Genesis 26. Let's read verses 1 to 3. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And uh, the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. So there's a famine in the land. And, and Isaac, who by this point had, it, it, if, if you read the scripture, he had hundreds of servants, uh, hundreds of herdsmen, uh, and, a, and a big family. He cannot sustain uh, his, his uh, family in the midst of a drought and in the midst of a family. So he sets out for Egypt. He saw no other options except to leave the place of promise because this was the land that God promised to Abraham and to his children and to his children's children. So Isaac is about to leave the land of promise and head to Egypt. He had heard that the famine had not spread there, so he starts in that direction. And it was necessity that drove him And yet at the start of his journey, God appears to him. And God commands him to stay in the area. But did you notice that with the command comes the blessing and the promise? The the promise is, I will be with you. And the blessing is, I will bless you. Now, I'm just going to tell you up front something. Uh, How many remember record players? Okay. We are going to go on 45 speed on a 33 album. Does that make sense? So we're going to get this moving for the sake of time because I want to get to application and then get to prayer time. So you're going to have to just follow with me. But if you notice the blessing and the promise, God said, stay in the midst of this famine, stay in the midst of this impossible, difficult circumstance, but here's here's what I'll do if if you obey me. I will be with you and I will bless you. And Isaac has a choice to make. Will I stay in faith and trust God? Will I obey and believe he will sustain and prosper me in the midst of famine? Because that's what it would take, faith. The two foundations 
uh, of faith, our trust and obedience. Amen? Trust and obey. There's no other way. Or will I push forward and go to Egypt and go towards a sure thing that I can see that is tangible that I can grab onto? He had to make that choice. But Isaac chooses to stay. He decides that God's presence and God's promises are always a better foundation upon which to build your life on than even something that seems like a sure thing. So let's read on. We're going to go to verse 16 and verse 18. I encourage you to bring your Bibles. I know we have a lot of electronic, but if you have, this is called paper and and stuff. And if you have that, because you can underline it in that. Verse 16. Then Abimelech, uh, the king of the Philistines, said to Isaac, move away from us. You've become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water. Well, I'm supposed to stop there, so I'll stop. Verse 12, if you were to read back, verse 12 tells us that Isaac stays where he's at, he goes to the place where his father Abraham was and that he, he uh, plants seed in the ground. Now think about the faith of this. He plants seed in the middle of a drought, in the middle of a famine. But the Bible says in verse 12 that he received a crop a hundred times what he'd sown into it. How many here can say, I've experienced the fact that despite all odds, when God gives a promise and God promises to bless and God's in it, you can get a hundredfold crop in the midst of a famine. Amen? That's what God's presence does. God's presence and blessing will cause us to flourish against all odds. But then the, the Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, tells Isaac to leave because he's threatened by him. Instead of saying, man, you know what? Maybe we need to come along and be friends with this guy. They see the blessing of God. They see the provision of God and they realize something. They realize, man, this guy isn't going to go anywhere as long as he's living in the blessing of God. And he became too powerful. They became threatened and they asked him to leave. So Isaac leaves and falls back on the wells that his father Abraham had dug many years before. Verse 18 reports that the wells were no longer open but had been filled in by the Philistines. Now, now think about this. I, Isaac is in the middle of a famine. He's in the middle of a difficult circumstance. Now he's got outward opposition coming against him. So he goes to where his father's wells are, hoping to at least find some water temporarily, and he finds there's no water. Things are just going from bad to worse here. And so, and so now he has to understand this. The Philistines uh, filled the well. To dig a well with their technology meant two things. A lot of hard work, and it was very expensive. And there was also no assurance that they'd find water. It, it wasn't like today where you would get, you know, some big heavy machinery out and dig a well. They had to do it by hand, friends. And they had to dig deep enough to hit water. And that wasn't quick and there was no guarantees. So filling in the wells was a major move by the Philistines against Abraham's family. See, to dig a well was to stake a claim. To dig a well, people need water. Their flocks and herds needed water. They would need water. So to dig a well meant we are staking, we found water. Our family is staking a claim here. So Abraham dug wells because he was staking a claim in the promises of God. Do you understand that? He was planting his feet and digging wells where God told him he would give the land. And so, so the Philistines came and, and tried to preempt Abraham's claim and nullify 
and prophesy that Abraham wasn't welcome in that place, right? So Isaac comes in the middle of this famine and reopens the wells of Abraham. And it says this took place in the valley of Gerar. It's important to look at that word valley for a minute because when we think of valleys, we think of like Banff out in Alberta, big mountains in a deep valley. This was more of a ravine in the ground that was caused. It was a narrow defile which was formed by summer rains. So when the torrential downpours came, it would pour into this decline and just the movement of the water would create a stream bed. But what would happen? Soon those stream beds would dry up when the rain stopped, but there stored underneath the surface was water that had seeped through and collected in underground caverns. So at one point, there would be rain there. There would be water there. And Isaac was kind of going on the prayer and the hope that there was still water that had collected. Remember, they're in a famine, probably caused by drought. There's been no rains. But Isaac uh, digs in his father's well, hoping to find water, and he does. But the water's not fresh, and the water's limited, and there's no sign of rain on the horizon. So this is only temporary. This isn't something that's going to sustain Verse 26, verse 19 uh, that I started to read tells us, Isaac's servants dug in the valley again and discovered a well of fresh water. That word fresh literally is translated living water. It was an underground stream that they had tapped into. It was flowing. It, 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 it wasn't stored water. It didn't need to be replenished by rain. It was unlimited. So let's read on in verse 20 to 22 of Genesis chapter 26. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they disputed with him. Then he dug another well, but they quarreled over that one as well. So he named it Sitna. He moved on from there a little farther away and dug another well. And no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, The Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. So the Philistines come over the first two wells and they claim ownership. Partly jealousy, partly threatened. They knew what Isaac had tapped into. Years and years and years supply of water. So they claim it. The word Essek means dispute or contention. Literally at the, at the core of that word is the word adversary. The word sitna means opposition. So under duress, in the midst of dispute, facing opposition... Isaiah has to leave fresh water, and he has to move on and dig another well. So he digs again. Sounds simple, but not really. It's hard work, and remember, water is necessary for life. But it illustrates a powerful principle. The life in God is always joining God in partnership to live in obedience, which brings blessing and keeps us in his promises. God didn't supernaturally dig these wells for Isaac. He had to dig into those wells. He had to dig down. But how many of you know if God wasn't in it, he wouldn't find water. It's a partnership. Striving in our own flesh and works just wears us out. Doing nothing and expecting God to do us all shows no faith or desire. So Isaac remaining in the blessings and the will and promises of God was not without effort or cost or controversy. You've got to log this all in because we're just laying the groundwork and then we're going to go with application. But God prevails. So Isaiah digs again, he finds water, and he says, this is going to give us room and room to flourish and room to go. Because water was life. Where you find water, you built your life around. You literally uh, pitched a tent where there was water. But here's what happens. They find water, and in Genesis 26, verse 23 to 25, it says, from there, 
He went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you, and I will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Verse 25. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. Then listen to this. Then he pitched his tent. That means he said, this is where we're going to put down roots. This is where we're going to build. He pitched a tent there. And his servants dug a well. Verse 32 says this. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we have found water. Did you notice something about his motivation for moving? The Bible says that he, he dug a well. He finds water. But from there, he packs up and he moves on. And he goes to Beersheba. And... Uh, and by the way, the well that he dug, verse 33, tells us he called it Sheba. And we'll look at that in a minute. But in every case before, Isaac had to move because of external circumstances. He was told to move, and then he followed the pattern of his father's wells. When he dug a new well, he dug another well, he moved because of opposition. But this time he digs a well and he finds life. There's no opposition. He even says, man, we could grow here, we could flourish here. But he moves on anyways. See, the impetus was different. The impetus went from being external to internal. God was leading him. God was guiding him at this point. And, and it was obedience. And he worships the Lord there. And he calls that well Sheba, which means seven. Maybe this was the seventh well that he dug. But in scripture, seven speaks of completeness, of perfection, of fulfillment. So he says, this is where God's been leading me. This is where God wants me. So he pitched his tent. So now we're going to bring it home. And uh, I believe God is calling us as his church and his people to dig some wells. He's calling us to dig some wells. His people, as represented here at Parkway, we need to get out our shovels and start digging. The time of promises fulfilled is now, not some far-off future time. I don't know about you, but I get tired of praying about what God's going to do, who God's going to save, who God is going to heal, how God is going to pour out, and it's always some far-off time. I believe the time is now. The time is now of the blessings and God's prophecies and promises in his word and the manifest presence of God touching his people with power is now. I believe that there's many in the church of Jesus, including uh, many here this morning, that are waking up to the fact that our nation is in a spiritual famine. How much more ungodly can we get? And it's not even that people are walking away from God. It's the brokenness and the unwholeness that people are living in. And that the church of Jesus, if the world is in a famine, the church of Jesus is at best dry. We must understand that God isn't going to bypass his church. He's not going to bypass you and I in order to see people saved, healed, delivered, set free, and restored. It's not someone else. The mandate is yours. The mandate is mine for this time and for this place. I believe God's heart for us is that we would be so desperate for the life of the Holy Spirit as Isaac was for living water, that we wouldn't see fresh, frequent infilling of the Holy Spirit as optional or for those flaky people, but that it's necessary, that we would be driven to get our spiritual shovels and dig into the life and, and the promises of God that if we seek him, we will find him. And church, it will be necessity that drives us to prayer, both individually and corporately. God help us that we're, we're too busy watching football and Netflix to pray for the people in our lives that are going to hell. 
And so I believe it will be necessity that drives us into his presence, into fellowship with the body of Christ, to seeking God on behalf of unsaved loved ones, for a manifestation of the gospel to set captives free and see lost people saved. See, without water, Isaac's family, their days were numbered, so they dug wells. What does it take for me to dig? What does it take for you to dig? Family members who are not saved and lost. I'm not trying to be harsh this morning, but I just need to remind you, how many of you believe that Jesus always told the truth? And Jesus spoke more about an eternity in hell than he ever spoke about heaven. That's just the reality. If we want to accept Jesus' words about heaven, we've got to accept Jesus' words about hell. And by the way, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. What about neighbors who are lost without Christ? What about abundant life that is supposed to start now and is only obtained by the power of the Spirit? What about the people in our lives that need healing for mental issues, sicknesses, broken people, hurting people? They're sick in body, sick in soul, confused in mind, just walking around in brokenness. And the church judges them instead of understanding that power comes in the name of Jesus. And the goodness of God can set them free. Nothing short of an encounter with the goodness and love of Almighty God will compel people without Christ to leave behind their sin, repent, and follow Jesus. Without the Holy Spirit convicting them, we will never convince them. So it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to grab the shovel and and dig some wells. So we live in a throwaway consumeristic culture, don't we? It's easier to replace than repair. We see that in marriages. We see that in relationships. One of the things that's facing the modern church is people, people don't know how to pray beyond 10 minutes. So we don't know how to intercede. We don't know how to press into God. We don't know how to ask, seek, knock, and find. Because we, li- we live in a world where if our computer doesn't boot up in five minutes, we just don't know what to do. Remember, God is into marinating, not microwaving. And, and we, we, we don't understand. We, we, we don't understand how to pray, pray through. We, we see that throwaway mentality. Isaac was about to skip town and go to Egypt. Sometimes when we're confronted with the sacrifice, commitment, and hard work that's involved in obtaining the promises and power God requires, it's just easier to move somewhere else, hope someone else will provide water for us, go where it's already flowing. But God said to Isaac, no, Isaac, you've got to stay here in the place of promise, in the place of purpose, because, listen, God could see what Isaac couldn't see. Isaac saw devastation all around him. Isaac saw famine. Isaac saw drought. But God said, Isaac, you see, I see something you don't. I see the water that's right under your feet. You're just going to have to get a shovel out and dig for it, Isaac, and trust me and obey me. Uh, Listen, friends, it's time for me. It's time for us to press in. It's time for us to start digging. The answer is not out there. The answer is not bringing in another ministry to do it for us. Friends, what we need, we already have. The answer is not in Egypt. It's not somewhere else. It's right here. God has been calling to us directly through his word, through a manifestation of his spirit, through prophetic and confirmations. He is here. His life is here. And if we dig in, there's so much more. You are the temple of the, of the Holy Ghost. La- last week, 
Somebody came to our church Saturday night, and they told me it wasn't just because Peggy Kennedy was here. It's because they've experienced Parkway before. And they say the life of the Holy Spirit is right here. They know what is right under our feet, the life of the Holy Spirit. How many times have we had general superintendents, district superintendents, people come and say, Jay, the Spirit of God is here. Your people should be lined up out the door Sunday morning saying, we need water. Right? Right? But this girl came, I'll, I'll tell you, it was Kelly. Some of you know Kelly and George. Kelly came. What I didn't know was she was 48 hours off of a major surgery where they did some work on her organs. Not the kind you play, like these kind, inside her. And she wasn't meant to do anything for a week. But she said, the Spirit of God compelled me to get to Parkway. So she goes, 48 hours later, she drove an hour and a half to get here. And this is her experience. She says, I walked through the doors of your sanctuary and the Spirit of God hit me. She goes, your worship team wasn't even playing. It was Lake Mount's pre-service music. She goes, the Spirit of God hit me. And she goes, I made this declaration. You are here, and where you are, there's healing. So my healing is here, so I receive healing. And she said, instantly, I started to go like this, Jay. And she goes, where my surgery was, all the pain left. All the pain was gone. And she said, I came back Sunday morning, no pain. I feel completely well, like I didn't have a major surgery 48 hours before. She saw something that was right under our feet, the power and the ministry. And you say, well, well she must be so favored by God. It's because she drove that far. God was just honoring that. No, you know what it was? Childlike faith. Childlike faith that just simply said, you're here, healing's here. Where you are, there's the fullness of who you are. And, where, and who you are is good. You're the healer, you're the savior, you're the deliverer, you're the redeemer. You're the God who loves us, the God who redeemed us, the God who has given everything so that we can have all things. So I just received that tonight. Right under our feet, friends. Right under our feet. And the Sundays I come to church and just think, like, why am I here, man? The football game's going to start, Lord. Uh, not that any of my teams are left, but that's besides the point. Uh, God's saying, Jay, you don't see what's right under your feet. We can come expecting. We can come hungry. Amen? And so if we could see beyond what our natural eyes see and understand the necessity of the life and power of the Spirit filling us, our church, our community, we would dig, we would dig, we would dig. The Lord's been showing me nothing's ever changing. And I'm not saying all, all of these things are, are wrong. But we're going to talk about balance in a minute. But there's imbalance in, 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 in our lives. How do we ever expect to watch nine hours of TV a day and read a five-minute devotional in the morning and ever expect things to change? How can we just be so worried and caught up with things of the world and, and expect our faith and confidence in, in God to grow. If we could see beyond what our natural eyes see and understand the necessity of the life and power of the Spirit filling us, we would dig. Every day we would dig. And once we've tasted of his power and presence, we would build our entire lives around his presence. We would constantly come and be refilled with the life-giving presence, frequent, fresh infillings of the Holy Spirit. So Isaac decides to stay, but he's thirsty. He needs water. So the first thing he does is he resorts to what he knows, his past experience with well digging. So he follows the wells that his father's already dug. I mean, it makes sense, right? They're already there. It takes a lot of effort, but not quite as much as digging into hard ground that's never been uh, turned up before. But his direction was dictated by the past. 
You realize that, right? He wasn't necessarily going in the direction that God wanted to lead him. He was just following the past. And he does find some life there. It wasn't fresh. It was almost used up, but it was a starting point. And I think it's easy for us when we realize we need God. We get that sense of loss. How many of you have got to a place in life, and if you're not sure, just tell me your age and I'll let you know if it's true or not. But how many of us get to a place in life where we realize there's more life behind us than there is in front of us? Like, I'm there. I'm just teetering on the edge of that now. You know what I mean? Yeah, Bob goes, I'm on the other side. But what happens is we start to get this sense of loss. We start to get this sense of there's, there's something missing. And then we start to wax nostalgic. I'm a wax nostalgic person. If you saw my Apple Music playlist, there's nothing beyond, I think, 1991 on it, except for worship music. My favorite movies you can still get on VHS. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm a, I get it. But can I, can I say something? We, we start to think things, when, when we get that sense of there's something missing in my life, we start to say things like, man, the music was so much better in church when I was young, when I was first saved. And I'm saying that it was better when I was young and first saved. It really was. But you're all saying that as well. We start to say things like, there just seemed to be more of an anointing. There seemed to be more of this and, and more of that. The, the patterns and preaching were better. And oh man, I remember when they had flags of the world all the way around the church. That used to just bring the Holy Ghost like nothing else. And there was always a sax player, John. Every worship team had a sax player. And they would just rip like Clarence Clemens from, you know, the E Street Band. Mm, they do that, you know. Oh! Pastors wore suits, sword drills. Now we have electronic Bibles. How are you supposed to do a sword drill fairly? <laughs> See, we realize we need something fresh from God. We realize the, say, the lost aren't being saved like maybe they once were. We realize, friends, that we've lost a whole generation that used to be in church to the world. And then we start to start to say, what do we need to do? So we start to go back to old wells, old patterns, old ways of doing things, and we start to dig in hopes that, well, I can remember, you know, God pouring out in churches when we used to have prayer banners and revival at Brownsville and the Pensacola revival. So we need, we need to model it after that. And sometimes we start to dig into those things, and there's a little bit of life there. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit honors, Right? And sometimes there's a bit of life there, but it's more nostalgia and comfort than it is the real life of the Holy Spirit. And we, we, we long for those, those days. Those days were better, weren't they? Those, I, I got caught up in this about six months ago. I was watching uh, for hours and hours at a time on YouTube. I was watching the Jesus movement from the 60s. Remember when they baptized people right in the ocean by the thousands? And then I bumped it up to 1990 and watched a whole documentary on the pouring out at Brownsville. And I was like, oh, God, those days were so much better. And society wasn't where it was. And the Spirit of the Lord put this on my heart. The Spirit of the Lord says, when does my kingdom ever retreat? 
When does my kingdom ever diminish? This is what the Bible says. And of the kingdom of our God and of our Lord. The kingdom of God advances. It doesn't decline. Of his, what does the scriptures tell us? Of the increase, say that with me. Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. God's kingdom increases. So I want to declare that God has something better for us in 2017 than he even did in the 1990s when millions of people flocked to Toronto and flocked to, to uh, Florida for a move of God. Because the king, of the increase of his kingdom, there is no end. And so we can easily mistake that believing that the pattern is what is missing when what is really is the life and power of the Holy Spirit. Hoping that resurrecting something from the past will reduce all the hard work and adjusting and digging brand new wells. Listen, we can't live in past experiences. I can't live on the past experiences. When I was a youth pastor, one of the hard things for me was I used to go and preach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I can remember one night, 21 kids came and stood to be, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I think 22 received that night because one of the leaders received. And then I became a senior pastor, and 22 people we'd pray for, and one would receive. And I started to pine for the old days when I was a youth pastor. How many of you know that does, that, that does no good? It, it's gone. It's finished. It's done. Nostalgia is okay, but it's never meant to replace fresh encounters with the Holy Spirit. We got to keep digging. Retirement is what we do in life. It's not what we do spiritually. We need to see people that are 98 years old in prayer meeting, digging, digging on behalf of the next generation, digging, gathering together with the new Christians and, 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 and the, the senior saints and gathering together and digging into the heart of God through prayer, not going, well, I did my part. I just want to say this, the youth group, the, the kids and youth came to Pastor Mitch and said, we feel like God. He taught on prayer and fasting Friday night, and they said, can we pray and fast next Saturday? For the lost people in our lives. Listen, we say, oh, it's great that they're enthusiastic. It's great that they can go without a meal for that day. But it's our generation that's meant to model for them the things of the Spirit. Not hand it off to them and say, it's your turn. Okay. Are you still with me? I don't have a whole lot more to go yet. Left. So let's go back to the text. What happened when Isaac hit fresh living water? What's the first thing that happened? Controversy. People were angry, man. People wanted to take ownership of it. We were here first. You might have dug the well, but we've been walking up and down this valley now for the last 10 years with our sheep. It's ours. Same is true of every move of God. When an individual goes all in with Jesus and they're tapping in unseen resources of the life of the Spirit, you can guarantee there'll be detractors. When a church gathered starts to experience the life and the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit, there will be opposition and controversy. Let me say that again. Not that there might be. There will be. Because the spirit of control and ownership can rise up. When Isaac struck water, they wanted what he had. A move of the Spirit threatens the status quo. A move of the Spirit threatens my comfort and your comfort. And we can be both jealous of what people have, but also threatened by what they have. Hey, we were here first. There can be pressure to shut down because of opposition or controversy to maintain the status quo. 
But once you've tasted fresh water, famine is intolerable. Once you've tasted fresh water, uh, even, even uh, going back to redug memories of past moves and stale water doesn't cut it anymore. So we have to keep digging. There's two arguments that people give. And listen, th- these are people that love Jesus and love the church. Okay? This isn't criticism. This is people that honestly, they, a move of God comes and controversy rises up. And sometimes people who love the church uh, uh, come and, and say things like, you know what? If this really was a move of God, I don't think there would be this controversy. You know, I know so-and-so. No, listen, people are well-meaning. Folks, I've said things like this. People, people have said things like, you know so-and-so. Yeah, they're as old as dirt. Yeah, and they've been in this church uh, since, since the beginning of time. They sat on the deacon board with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, and you know how faithful they are, Pastor. You know how much they love Jesus. Yep. Well, they don't agree with what's going on. And I just don't understand how if this pouring out of the Spirit is of God, how they could disagree how there could be so much controversy. Here's, here's the long and the short of it. Here, here's the kind way to say it. Is that, really? If it's really a God thing, there'll be no controversy? Jesus was a God thing. Well, I mean, let me rephrase that. Jesus was God. <laughs> In the flesh, the word became flesh and pitched a tent among us. But the darkness has not understood it. Right? Now you're, oh, now you're calling those people dark. Oh, <laughs> Listen, the Son of God came to this earth to what? Show the will of the Father. And it says he went about doing good and setting people free. And there was controversy, and they nailed him to a cross. So to say that if this was God, there'd be no controversy, it doesn't, it, it's just not true. The second thing that well-meaning people say, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess to you, I've said it. In fact, I've said it in the last six months. Is they'll say things like, well, you know, uh, well-meaning people come and they say, well, you know, uh, I need to caution you to pursue balance. Rather than embracing zeal for God and hunger for the Holy Spirit and desire for revival. Now, sometimes I know people are talking about uh, people's response to the moving of the Spirit. I understand that. Balance. But I've heard people say in the last few years, talking about people who have a zeal for God, they've said to me, but don't you think they need to have a little more balance in life? What? They need to talk more about movies and football and hockey and knitting and things rather than Jesus? Yeah, they should be a little more balanced. Let's, let's break that out. Let me respond with the word. Balanced. We need to be balanced people. What did Jesus say was the greatest and most important commandment? Love. Every time it says all, I want you to shout out all. Let's practice. Okay, no, shout it out, Okay. One, two, three. Oh. Okay, that's pretty. Whoa. Woo. You go, buddy. Let's try that again. Oh. Okay, so let's read it. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with your heart and with your soul and with your mind. There's no translation of the Bible that tells us to love them cautiously in a measured, balanced, dignified kind of way. No. Say it again. 
all means full on, full throttle, passionate love with everything we have. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. So until we are heart sick with longing, until we're drained in our strength from resisting temptation so we can live righteously and kill the selfishness that wants to make me first, until we're physically drained from worshiping or serving, until our minds are consumed with a burden to pray, we haven't loved God in the way Jesus told us is the highest privilege and fulfillment of the law. All. There's no balance in that. Jesus made statements like, hey, if you love your mom and dad more than me, you're not even worthy of my kingdom. Now, Jesus, that's a little imbalanced. (laughs) This is how Jesus demonstrated his love for us on the cross. Jesus was so stinking imbalanced that he even died for us and gave his life. I mean, he was only 33 years old. How much good could have he done if he could have taught another 10 years? But instead, Jesus went all in, was totally imbalanced on his mission, and gave himself up for you and for me. He loved us with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind. So I believe that digging a well into the life of the Spirit is opening up an alabaster jar of one year's wages and pouring it out on Jesus out of sheer love and appreciation. Think about that. Did that catch you? A year's wages. I don't know how much you make a year, but man, that's expensive perfume from my point of view. And she poured it out all over Jesus. She's so imbalanced. She could have taken that same money, sold that perfume, and given it to the poor. But instead, this flaky nutcase, this imbalanced person, pours it all out over Jesus and wastes it. Who was the one that called for balance? The Bible says it was Judas, who would later betray Jesus. Man, Jesus just let her get all imbalanced and weird. Digging a well into the life of the Spirit. Into the presence and heart of God is like David dancing before God in his... Boxer briefs, which happened in scripture. Here are Calvin Goldkleins, Goldsteins. <laughs> so enraptured and excited he was to have the presence of God return to Jerusalem, the Bible says that he danced in his underwear, making a fool of himself in front of his nation. This is the king. And his wife, Michael, looking from the window, was like, Hey, David, let's. Dial it back a little bit. You're a little imbalanced. You're going to have to sit and preside in the court tomorrow, and all they're going to see is you in your underwear. How are they ever going to take you seriously? You know what's the interesting thing is? The Bible says God cursed Michael and blessed David. It's Jesus' disciples dropping their nets right there in the water where they stood and walking away from their family business to accept the privilege to follow Jesus wherever he went and have a front row seat at the greatest revival the world had ever seen up to that point. Man, did you hear how imbalanced those guys were? They, I mean, their dad worked so hard to establish that business for them. He passed it right on to them. And they just walked away from it, John. To go be itinerant evangelist and raise the dead and heal the sick. Like, <laughs> radical. Imbalanced. It's Abraham tying his son and placing him on an altar and about to sacrifice him out of sheer devotion and commitment to obeying God at all cost. Imbalanced. It's Paul saying, I consider everything as a heap of dung compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. I consider it all lost, dead to me. Paul. 
you had degrees coming out the yin-yang. I mean, your parents paid for you to go to rabbinical school. <laughs> and you're just going to throw that all away? Your mom, if she were alive today, she'd be rolling over in her brain. Right? <laughs> Paul, you had all this status. Now they hate you and are throwing you in prison. You're always wounded and hunted and hated. Paul, if you just had a little balance in your life, Pete, you'd be a lot easier for people to handle. Paul, you're kind of bringing this on yourself. By the way, balanced isn't a Christian concept or thought. It's a Buddhist value. It's a Buddhist value that says it's trying to find the perfect tension between two opposite sides. Scriptures insist not on balance, for God seems to delight in imbalanced people whose lives are consumed with a zeal for him. But scriptures point to a spirit-revealed wisdom, love, and obedience to God's word and a devotion to his kingdom that protects us from the worldly imbalances of working too much, being too money-focused, pursuing worldly comforts and pleasures, and being distracted by temporary things. That's what the Bible insists on. I think... In wisdom ignited by the Holy Spirit as we apply the Holy Scriptures to our daily lives gives us the principles to live by a loving, obedient call to Christ, to live for higher and eternal values. I think balance is an excuse, has been an excuse in my life for spiritual apathy. I think balance is the justification of a carnal Christianity that has pervaded the North American church. I think balance is an excuse not to dig in and do the hard work and shoulder the burden. Let someone else go to prayer meeting. I went to prayer meeting for 40 years. It's someone else's turn. I'm a little more balanced now than when I was winning the lost for Jesus. <laughs> I just threw that in. That's not. <laughs> Can you be too much in love with Jesus? Can you be too focused on God? Can you be too led by the Spirit? Can we be too concerned about lost people? Can we spend too much time interceding for the hearts of people? I don't know where the last part of my notes are. Ah, here they are. Like, uh, like, like Isaac, and I'm closing with this if the worship team can come. Like Isaac, I think so often our impetus for digging into the things of God has been external things, problems, trials, situations, sicknesses. And I'm so thankful that when we get to those places where we're backed up against the wall, we get out our shovels, we reprioritize our lives, and we start to dig into that wellspring of life and wholeness and healing. I am so thankful that God always responds. But I really believe that over the last 10 or 11 years, listen, uh, I don't know why people stay away when we bring in someone like a Peggy Kennedy on a Saturday night, but let me just say this. If I didn't think that she was going to speak prophetically from the heart of God, I never would have brought her in. Because I'm honestly not in a flake, I'm in a fruit. And we have, we have the opportunity. In fact, uh, one of our district people drove in Thursday for a pastor's meeting, saw the Peggy Kennedy sign and said, Oh man, God sent you guys a prophetic voice to encourage your life. And I often think, and this isn't a rebuke to anybody, this is just a picture of the North American church. God sends us prophetic people to speak into our lives and we stay home. How much have we devalued the ministry of the Holy Spirit? And can I just say this as well? I don't believe in revivals where pastors pressure people to come every night and burn themselves out. 
So get, let's get that out of our mind right at the start. I believe in revivals where we are just digging into the wellspring of life that we can't live without, we try to live without, and we get to the place where when life backs us to a wall, we start digging again. But let our impetus just be hunger. Let our impetus just be the leading of the Holy Spirit. I think that we've been out of balance as the Church of Jesus in North America, and God's calling us to dig new wells, to pursue a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, new encounters with His presence. I call to the senior saints, and I call to the brand new Christians. The time to dig in and gather and pray is now. The time to call out to God for our prodigals is now. It's time to do away with comfort and costless Christianity and do the hard work of digging, seeking his face, leaving our sin behind, not crowding out passion with entertainment and leisure, but to seek his face, not comfort, to get out of the boat, not chastise those who rock the boat. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, and if they, if they would seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. How many of you have prodigals and unsaved loved ones in your life, and you say, hey, wait a sec, they're living in this land. If we would humble ourselves, if we would pray, call on his name, seek his name, then our prodigals, why do prodigals get saved? Why wherever there's a pouring out of God in a church or a region do prodigals come to Jesus? Do you know why? Because the church starts to call out to God on behalf of the land and God starts to work on the prodigals. More than just a five-minute morning thing, Lord, I pray you convict my kids of their, mm, you know, Lord, just bring them back to you. But we get on our faces and we say, Jesus, I got to turn off Netflix. Jesus, I got to go for a prayer walk because I got to call out for the next half an hour on behalf of lost people who are going to hell without you. So Jesus, I give you this next half hour and I cry out to you. I cry out to you on their behalf, Jesus. That's why the lost get saved in the midst of a revival. Because the church of Jesus is digging into a wellspring of life and prayer and commitment that we didn't before. Does this make sense? It's time to grab the shovel and start digging. We honor the past. We're grateful for the present. But the Spirit is saying there's so much more. And so this morning, we're going to uh, have you stand in a minute. Some of you, like I've had to, might need to repent of prayerlessness. I'm too busy, Lord. The church is too busy while the world is broken, while our prodigals are leaving the church. We might need to repent of carnality and sin, repent of apathy. Some this morning might need to just spend time with God. God, I'm not where I once was. Just breathe into the embers of my heart. Some might need to just seek him on behalf of your family this morning. Some might just simply need to say, God, I haven't been in your presence in a while. I know your presence is all around me, but I just need your presence. Whatever this morning, this is what we want to do. We want to turn this room into a place of prayer, place of worship, a place where you can just uh, get alone with God. The altars are open. I do encourage some of you to come to the altar, and I'll tell you why. It just, it, it's a sign. God, I give myself to you. I commit myself to you. And I'm not worried about what anybody around me is doing. I'm just going to shut in with God. You might want to kneel where you're at. If you have to go, God bless you. Thank you so much for coming this morning. But for those who would stay, let this be a house of prayer. Let's stand, okay? Jesus. Jesus. There's a wellspring that's going to start flowing right now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come upon every person 
even non-believers this morning, convince them of your reality today, Jesus, by just letting that river of God, that river of goodness flow right now in Jesus' name. We receive you, Lord. God, if repentance is needed, I pray that you would draw people. If getting alone with you and people working through some of the issues in their lives, and Lord, I pray that you would do that as well in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Okay, church, the altars are open. Some of you need to come. Let's just take a few minutes and pray. Thank you so much for listening to our message. We hope that it blessed and encouraged you. If you'd like to know more about Parkway Church, you can visit our visit tab at parkway-church.com. And if you like what you hear, we would love to come have you join us on a Sunday morning here in Corona at 10 a.m.